Hello, welcome to our latest edition of the lockdown, and I'm delighted to be joined by online international web video J journalist. Whoa, that sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> Jerome Quinn. Jerome, how are you keeping? Ah, grand. A lot of hair and a big red face, but um, you know, apart from that, things aren't too bad. You know, I'm nearly the same color as the uh, jersey. You might notice I've <laughs> just happened to have lying there or hanging there in the background. You know, um, and the other night I had a disaster, which is related to this as well. I dropped a huge jar of beetroot from about seven, eight foot in the air onto a tiled floor in the kitchen. And it looked like a scene from Friday the 13th. There was just blood splattered on white doors, white fridges, on my new carpet in the hall. It was a disaster zone, you know. But these days, I suppose, being serious, everything's in a different context than it ever was before. You know, so at the time you were still going, this is the end of the world. But after a while, you're just laughing at it, you know, so normal things still happen. But it's um, it's all just like the goalposts have just changed a wee bit. Exactly. Uh, I'm not going to lie to you. Whenever I um, envisioned myself talking to Jerome Quinn, I always thought it would be about my footballing career. And <laughs> possibly. possibly, possibly yeah, well, you be Talk about your career. Right. Okay. <laughs> that'd be, so, that'd be a very short one. <laughs> Jerome, you're a throne man who's adopted a down club through years. Um, Brida, how did that come about? Well, I moved to Belfast, obviously, for work. I started working on the Irish News and then moved to BBC. And then my kids were starting to get up around 93, 94, um, the lower years. Um, but, you know, although like I was presenting a Gaelic program on TV and Gaelic was buzzing and County Down, there was no Gaelic in my area. There was the, the, the Breda were there, but uh, sorry, there was no Gaelic in the schools. It was in the area, but not not in any really um, visual, obvious way, because, you know, the pitch was tucked in behind the school. So you couldn't see it from the road. I remember going to try and find it one night and couldn't find it. Uh, whereas now it's in Cherryville and everybody knows where Cherryville is. So it, it wasn't obvious. And also, I mean, they're, they're underage teams. They were basically teaming up with the local soccer club, Rosario. So there was no real youth system there. So <clears throat> I, or, um, I sort of got a few things going on the old Gaelic pitch and then at Breda. And then, then the big thing was I got a, a schools league going. And I used to bring people up like Shane King and then Connor Laverty after that, you know, the down coaches. But the big thing, they helped me with it, but the big thing was a schools league every Tuesday. So I got a sponsor on board and we were around, uh, we got the South Belfast News, so it was Marcin O'Mullier, who basically, he was great. I went along and seen him. He says, what do you want? And I said, it was like, can you give us a grand? He's going, aye, okay. And then you think, oh, should I ask him for more? But you got all these jerseys from Gaelic gear, it was in the day. So we just made the same jersey in all different colours and went around to a school. Like I remember going to a school in um, St. Matthews and, you know, St. Bernard's and St. Michael's where my kids were at, uh, Holy Rosary, and even in the Carry Duff and over to St. Bride's. So like we went outside our catchment area and St. Joe's and, and Ballyhackamore and went to all these schools and gave them a set of jerseys and balls. And they were all like delighted, obviously. But so you had to put it on a plate for them. But, you know, I was, I was going to them in 1994 and saying, do you realize that you're in County Down and they're the All-Ireland Champions? And all the kids were looking at me going like, what? And like I was holding up a down jersey and like two or three hands would go up to know what it even was. That's how crazy it was, you know. But then the schools league, we got them out every Tuesday, put up the goalposts in the park and got referees got the, and got the newspaper 
to come along and do a spread on it every week. And the whole thing just went crazy. And we got loads of players from that. And the whole thing is mushrooms. And now Breda's youth system is absolutely huge. But in those days, I mean, I'll give you one little example. There was a guy at St. Bernard's and he was the number four tennis player in Ireland and was a brilliant soccer player, but he wouldn't play Gaelic. And, but he would play Gaelic for his school. So he went along with the school and they won it. And he was brilliant. And we then got him to play under 12 that year. And we went to the East Down Championship as it was. They ended under 12 and played Kilku in Lockin Island. And we played them off the park and Kilku were disgusted. In fact, I, I claim that sort of led to their success because they went back and, uh, you know, back to the drawing board. We also beat them in the league final a couple of months later and they were, you know, they were absolutely horrified that they'd been beaten twice. And every year after that, they destroyed us. But that year, and it was mainly or largely because of that kid. And it turned out it was uh, to be Niall Wright, who went on to become or is now a famous actor. He was in Mickey Bow and Me. He was the kid in it. And that shows you part of the problem in Breda as well. You know, so there was another kid that was brilliant on that team and he went on to play, he went off to play for Colchester United when he was 16, you know, for two years and um, no harm to Kilku, like you don't get that as, as much, shall we say. So, you know, it was all about building that youth system and, and it produced goods in the short term and now in the long term, it's absolutely huge. And even with the trade-offs, Success now as well. Don't mention them now. Don't mention them. Um, <laughs> they followed us. They followed us. <laughs> it's still a wee bit to go to get to Division 1. But you know, it's great to see that you know uh, that the Gaelic in, in Belfast is in County Down as well. You know, it's, it's, the numbers is phenomenal in Breda. I think it's the, it's the, the biggest underage intake you know, in County Down. Yeah, but you know, as I say, as I was hinting at, it's bringing all that through. Mm-hmm. Now it's fantastic that they've all got Gaelic games. That's that's the most important thing, is it? And you know, you see, I see kids now, and they're maybe thirty years old, and I remember them when we were twelve, and it's great that they have that in them, because otherwise they wouldn't. I mean, if we hadn't done all that back then, you know, they wouldn't have a Gaelic games background. Um, so it's important just to give them a background, and it's good. It was great that you know at times we were just competing in finals, and we were getting to finals, and you were there and thereabouts, and you realised there was a bigger picture there, you know. But at the same time. You always want to have your players come through as well. Uh, and you would maybe know, I mean, back in the day, way before all that, I mean, Brady guys used to go to like county trials, which were never up near Breda. They were always a long way away. And, you know, there was lads told me they just got called Belfast, you know, gives the ball Belfast, you know. <laughs> so there was maybe a certain um, um, perception um, or you know, placing of, you know, what the city boys were like, you know, they weren't maybe county standard or whatever. So it's great now to see the odd player coming through at county standard. And, you know, we want to be contributing to the whole county at every level, you know, and camogie and ladies football and, you know, um, all the way through. And we are doing that big time, especially in ladies football, which is great to see. So you do see the bigger picture and it, it is nice to see that it's it's big, but you always want to see it bigger. I mean, I remember back in the day wondering why we weren't really um as much a part of the, the the down family as maybe we could have been and i remember um someone in down not in many names but they basically told us that we were a bit of a loose cannon you know because we'd had a summer camp at a rugby venue with the club across the river in county antrim you know and i think there was a bit of a reluctance there to accept brita as sort of being a genuine um force shall we say in in down gala games but i think that's slowly changing i think they realize now that we're we're there for the long road and there's a lot of people in the club doing a lot of things really really well no it's, it's brilliant to see it really is but i suppose jerome the 
I want to talk to you about 30 years ago when you had better hair. You had, I don't know. <laughs> you, maybe had a, you maybe have a stylish or two back then, but 13th of May, 1990, the championship was, was launched. Um, absolutely, the, the theme tune and everything was, was superb on it. How much influence did you have in the, in the show and you know, what did it mean to be there, um, you know, starting off there? I was a key figure, man. I was there. <laughs> Wouldn't have it. No, seriously, I'm only joking. I only had a side, but I mean, I was the news desk, you know, um, sort of like after the main events were over. So, but like I was a young kid coming through it and I wouldn't expect it to do anything else, but it was great just to be part of it. But to answer your question, it was a funny, it was quite funny. I mean, I remember that, you know, people used to come to me when the program started asking me questions that were really easy for me to answer. And it was because there was no one else really in the department who knew the answers. Because up to then, I mean, I was the first Catholic who was in production or presentation in the BBC Northern Ireland Sports Department that, that I knew of. There were a few uh, females in the background in um, sort of um, production assistant PAs, to call them, you know, um, but not in any sort of journalistic sense. So, you know, all of a sudden I came in and then they got the championship and then, um, you know, they had to turn half of the department into this series. So they were mainly, as I say, all these sort of Protestant guys who were producers or whatever. And, you know, they were trying to put this program together and they'd come to me and they'd say, I think, Jerome, you know, we're a bit of a problem here. And you're going, oh, what is it? What is it? We've got a graphic ready for Sunday. What color did Jerome wear? You know, and you're going, well, there they were white with a bit of red. Oh, fantastic. Great. <laughs> and it was like they were delighted. I was going, right, give me a hard question. No, but it was really because they, their starting base was zero. You know, they had no perception, no knowledge at all of Gaelic games. So, you know, I became very useful at the start. So I was actually a radio producer at the time, but then they realized very quickly that, you know, they needed, needed a bit of help there and they needed um, somebody who knew Gaelic games and I knew Gaelic games. So I was working on radio, but then they brought me in for the TV program as well. And as I say, I did that, but I was sort of, I suppose, I mean, I did the news desk and it meant, you know, club results, club news, um, bit of action from a few other games, rounding things up. Um, but I suppose I was maybe keeping an eye on the rest of the program and keeping them right as well. I mean, Mark Robson was the main presenter and he, he christened himself the North Down Prod, you know, doing the Gaelic program. And he would, he would keep, he would ask me lots of questions, you know, about what's happening or whatever. Now I was, like I say, I was raw, you know, to TV, but he was very experienced. He was brilliant. I mean, he really, really worked hard. He did his homework. He came in, like early on a Sunday morning with all the papers and read all the papers and he'd say like, well, you see that thing that Colin Maruka saying, is that important? Should I use that? You know, he was very, very good. Whereas in contrast, say Jackie Fullerton years later would have come in at four o'clock and said, well, who's playing? You know, so it was a different kind of attitude, but Jackie sort of carried it in another way. Um, but Robson was very, very good like that, but he was so confident and, you know, when we did the program at the start, we were all sitting in these chairs. They called them the Barry Norman chairs from the, the TV program. And uh, with no desks in front of us, so we were exposed, you know, and I was so nervous. I was terrified, you know. Um, but, you know, they, they had this quiz every week and the prize was an O'Neill's football. And Mark would be sitting there and he would say, and the prize this week is an O'Neill's football. And at that, the floor manager from behind the camera would throw the ball at him. And Mark would go, this ball and I'm looking I'm going <laughs> I had to drop that and falling over but uh and no jokes about how I played football by the way but um you know he was so confident and I really didn't know what I was doing and and in those days it was so primitive primitive as well that the um 
the auto cue wasn't as sophisticated as it is now. And you basically had this wee woman who stapled bits of paper together and pushed them through a machine, you know? And on a Sunday night, she might have been over at the BBC club and had a couple of whiskeys. And I remember being terrified anyway, and she did not help. Like, I remember, I think, one of the weeks that the last page for me didn't come up. And I was, like, doing something there. And I was about to look up and then read the last paragraph and go, good night. And it was like, Mark, help. <laughs> so it was a wee bit like that. So I was very young, very raw. Um, but it was nice to have just had any sort of role in it, and I had a role in it through the weekend and on the night and every week, so it was nice to be part of a wee bit of broadcasting history. It was, it was amazing. 17 years, I think, it ran for. Was that, would that be right? You were on it for... Well, it ran as a series for four years, um, sort of every Sunday night, and then UTV got it for a few years, and then it came back to us, and then we ran it, and then things just generally um, changed over the years, I mean, we started doing more live games. I mean, it's taken for granted now, but back in those days, you didn't do live games, which is why, you know, the highlights idea was was so good and so popular. You know, no one had seen the games. So they went, it was a bit like the Sunday game, but they hadn't seen the game. So it was like that. And then um, 94, like down Derry and Celtic Park was live. And that was a huge thing. It was all this talk where are, we, are they they're doing the game live? I know because it was a quarterfinal, you know, and that hadn't been done before. Um, but by the time it came around to say around 2000, 2002, you know, the Armatron years, there were a lot of live games, you know, then it was changed and then there wasn't as much need for the highlights program. And then they ended up doing like a midweek program and a Wednesday. So there's different variations of it. But yeah, it was basically there for a long time. But as I say, 1990, this day, 30 years ago was the very first program. And it really changed a lot because then like, you know, there just hadn't been Gaelic games on BBC or even on UTV much. I mean, before that, BBC and UTV had not had an arrangement for the Ulster Championship, and this was it. They, did, they took a semi-final each and filmed it with like maybe one camera and put out like 20 minutes highlights. And the final, they did it year about. And I think they gave some minimal fee to the Ulster Council, but that was it. You know, they might have sent a news camera to the odd game, but that was it. That was the coverage. So it was a huge difference, a huge leap from that to what they did. And... Like, I remember I've seen the 1989 programme, which is a, <clears throat> the only BBC programme the year before. And the Ulster final programme went out at, say, 11.30 at night, ran for about half an hour. The presenter was John Bennett, um, Protestant guy who basically knew nothing about Gaelic games. And his pundit was a fellow called Pat Blake. And Pat never played the game to any standard that I know of. He's a great guy and a great sponsor from Derry Lynn and Fermanagh, but he basically presented a radio program. So it was like they went, bring him in, you know, and they asked him a few questions. And like, you know, he, he, he shouldn't have been a pundit, but it was just like that'll do. So it was a huge difference in, any, in every way to go from that to the following year to doing it every Sunday night. And people were absolutely astonished. I mean, the letters that came in were incredible. Um, you know, Jerry Adams wrote in and there was another one wrote in and um, congratulated Mark Robinson and got the name wrong. But there were, there, were, there were all sorts of county boards and clubs and everybody was just absolutely thrilled with it. Uh, and it was fascinating for me because I would come in after the Sunday night program on the Sunday mo- on the Monday morning or on the Monday morning, the following month the following morning. And um, half the department was delighted and the other half were, you know, obviously not. Uh, amused you know <laughs> and these letters were coming in from Jerry Adams and there were people who were like 
not happy at all about that or you know then we're from north down and we don't appreciate this kind of thing you know so it was very interesting the reaction to the program within the bbc you know and yourself you're saying that you weren't you know was it easy for you to present or interview or what were, what role did you see yourself um aspiring to be or to be honest with you john when i look back now i feel like i was sort of thrown in there you know I don't, I don't, didn't have any great ambitions and, you know, I didn't ask to be on TV. I remember going on holidays, might've been 1990 and went to Cork to visit relatives and I had a holiday haircut. It was absolutely, believe it or not, all this was shaved. And I came back from holidays and it was due, due in on the Monday and I got a, my rota had been posted out to me and I opened it and I was on TV doing the news program, the sport on the news program every, every night that week. It was inside Ulster. And I was like, you know, have they seen me? And like, I didn't even have, hardly even had a shirt and tie. Um, but you know, that's, they, they didn't come to me and say, you know, we would like you to do this or we'd like you to groom you for this. You were just chucked in there, you know? Um, and that's just the way it was, you know, but you just got on with it and you did it and you sank or you swam. Um, but I remember like the, the natural route in journalism was that you would do newspapers, then radio, then TV. I did radio. I was in Radio Foil for two years and then went to the Irish News, so it sort of bucked the trend a wee bit there. But I didn't ask to get on TV. It was just sort of happened that way. Um, and the next thing was you were on all the time. And then next thing I was doing the Saturday programme, which was five o'clock on Saturday on Grandstand and you were reading the football results every week. And that was huge as well. So at all bases covered, you know, I was doing all the sort of Irish League stuff on Saturday and then you were doing the Gaelic on the Sunday nights. So I was overexposed in those days, John, definitely, you know. No, it was, uh, I still remember, like, you know, um, uh, people probably, the young people watching this here probably don't understand, like, yeah. the, the importance of, you know, that championship programme, you know, because, as you said, we had no um, insight into, into what, uh, like, well, you, you took it for granted what was happening. How do you mean we took for granted the, the game, the programme, or? The, 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 game, the game, the actual games themselves, you know, mm. you took it for granted, like, you know, uh, this Donegal beat down, or you know, if you weren't there, you didn't know anything about it. Yeah. Whereas now it was on Sunday night, and get, you know, people who followed the games were just absolutely thrilled. Absolutely, you know, they were in dreamland to see this happening. You know, they'd never imagined. They didn't feel that they sort of belonged. You know, and all of a sudden they were put out there on TV. But it was interesting, you know, how the program sort of developed and how it was regarded. Um, and also it made RTE really sort of improve. Um, I mean, I remember, I have this perception, I know sometimes the memory mightn't be right, but I remember um, Kieran Barr, the Antrim hurler, scoring a goal in Croke Park in an All-Ireland maybe hurling semi-final. And I don't think anybody's ever seen it because Cork had just scored a goal and the Antrim goalkeeper immediately pinged it out to Kieran Barr at centre half forward. He turned and pinged it in the net. But the problem was that RT only had two cameras, I think, at the game. And they, they didn't realise what was going on and they didn't have the cameras that, that caught that. But when they saw BBC doing all this, BBC, I mean, remember the producer, Protestant fellow, Alec Johnson, and um, he, uh, he put a camera on the sideline at the halfway point because he wanted to capture the speed of the game. So he, I remember him showing me a shot of like Dermot McNichol getting the ball near the sideline and sprinting along with the ball and the tenacity and players bouncing off him. And, you know, you imagine that shot of him going and you following it like that, it just brought it alive. 
more than, I mean, you could just go to a game. Like I go to games with a single camera and it's wide, but you're not catching the speed of the game at ground level. And so he was doing things like that that really caught on. And the other thing was the pundits, you know, which, you know, you need that for credibility. And the story, I'll give you a wee insight on this. Um, Jim Neely was head of sport. And Jim came to me and said, um, Kevin McCabe's going to be our um, pundit. And Kevin's nickname was The Prince, which might give you um, an idea of how he regarded himself, never mind how anybody else regarded him. And he was a fine looking man and, and still is. And had played for Tyrone for years and was an all-star and had retired. And Jim thought, that, you know, he'll be the man, he'll look the part. And I was thinking, well, I've never interviewed him or heard. I'm not sure what, what he's like to, to chat. And he was like, it's grand. He looks the part. He'd be great. Um, but on the early, in early May, Jim came to me one Monday morning and says, what the hell are we going to do now? I says, what are you talking about? He says, Kevin McCabe came on as a sub yesterday for Tyrone. He came out of retirement in a mechanic up game. He can't do pundit now, you know? So I says, oh, well, I says, well, there's a fellow that I've interviewed a few times and I've spoken to him a few times uh, after games or whatever, and he's, he's brilliant at analysing it. He always tells me stuff that I wouldn't even have thought of. He's on a different level, and he's won a few Ulsters, and it was Sean McCabe. And I says, all right, okay. And he didn't even know who he was, but he went and rang him and got Sean McCabe, and that's how Sean McCabe ended up being the, the pundit in the programme. Sean was brilliant. I mean, he went on to become a president of the GAA, not just because of that, like, but I'm sure it helped a wee bit. But uh, Sean was brilliant because every week when you went to Sean, you know, and said, Sean, what did you think of the game today? You know, there's four players sent off, and it was, it was absolutely nonsense there. What, 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 what was that all about? And Sean would start off by deflecting you and say, I'd like to congratulate everyone who was part of the occasion today and everyone who hosted it. And he went off on this every week. So he was, he was maybe angling for president, you know. <laughs> um, and that's, that, that's what happened. You know, he ended up becoming president. But every week he did that. And then he analyzed it really well. And he had a brilliant way of breaking down the game. And he had a nice way about him as well. He was a lovely man. And, you know, it brought a lot of credibility to the programme. Was the Ulster Council, were they worried about the, the attendances going to games whenever, you know, you were showing the, the highlights and then the games? There was a wee bit of that, you know, but I don't think there was a lot of it. I mean, I don't think the attendances were that fantastic pre-1990. So I think, if anything, it, it helped boost it. I mean, the very first game on this day, 30 years ago, um, was Antrim against Monaghan and Castle Blaney and St Mary's Park. And like Antrim didn't bring a big crowd and Monaghan didn't have a big crowd. There wasn't a big crowd at it. So it was very beneficial for them to have their games put out there on TV. And I'd say, you know, it's not a total coincidence that like the game in Ulster took off. And I know I'm not, I'm not taking credit like for four All-Irelands, but, you know, it took off on a certain level. I mean, there were a lot more females going to the games. Like by the time Armagh came around, there was a huge female support. Um, and Tyrone as well. They were all going to the games. The jerseys were all being worn, which weren't really wasn't really the case pre nineteen ninety. You know, you got to the, the late nineties and like everyone was in their Armagh jersey or the Tyrone jersey. They were all wearing the jerseys, but that wasn't really a thing before that. So the perception of the games was different. And you know, to be fair, the GEA, um, you know, they they upped their ante as well. Like that first game in St Mary's Park in Castle Blaney, I found out later that the club or maybe the county, I'm not sure, had been fined by Ulster Council because. The, the white walls around the ground hadn't been painted and the pitch wasn't in great nick. So, you know, they became aware very quickly as well of how the game looked, you know, and they wanted to put it out well. And, you know, so I'm not trying to run down the game in those days, but, you know, it wasn't maybe run as professionally at a lot of way, in a lot of ways as, as it is now and what you would expect now. You know, it's a bit like the Premier League. You look back at some of the Premier League highlights and they're playing in mud baths and now, like, you would, wouldn't, every 
ground as, as like a carpet, you know. So GAA is very much gone the same way. So they're all very media conscious. But I, I don't think they ever suffered spectator-wise. I mean, I think it led to interest in the game, not just, as you say, from Gaelic people who were just delighted to see the games and maybe couldn't get to them, but even a lot of people who were non-Gaelic fans and from, as you say, the other side of the fence, it brought a lot of them to the game as well. Are you surprised by the meteoric rise that the Jays had in, since then to 2020? No, no, I mean, um, I don't think I'm surprised. I'm, I'm, I'm delighted to see it and it's great the way that it's happened, you know, but I think um, I'm not, not surprised about it. You know, it should have been that way before. And maybe, I don't know why it wasn't, but it's just really taken off. Um, I'm surprised. Um, I mean, I think you've got to look at Gaelic games as different from any other sport. And I found that not only going up and down Ireland, but around the world. There's no sport like it, you know, for, you know, you look at rugby, apart from Ulster, like the club rugby, nobody goes to watch it. You know, Irish League obviously doesn't get a huge attendance either. We get huge attendance, but it's because the whole family is interested and the whole community is interested. It means something to them. You know, it's like, say, say if you have a household and say one person's interested in Carrick Rangers, like the rest of the family might give a fiddler's. But if you have a family in Dungannon who are into Tyrone, the entire family and the, and the cat and the dog are interested in how it's going. And, you know, that's what makes it unique. And that's why, you know, I really enjoy, um, you know, I don't miss being on TV. I don't miss the big program because I've thrown myself into, you know, Gaelic games at all sorts of levels. And I get as much a kick out of doing, you know, a, a minor match or a camogie match or club match or whatever, or a higher education game or, or, you know, a game in Toronto or San Diego or whatever, because you just know that the feedback you're going to get is going to be so positive and people are going to be so pleased about what you're doing. And there's always an angle in the store. There's always an angle in the game. You know, I love doing a game. It could be like the last game we did before all this happened was a division four. We did a live stream in a division four league game, but in, in ladies football, Leitrim against Limerick. But, you know, you're always able to look at the end of the game and find one or two things in it that are going to go a little bit um, viral. You know, there's always something in a Gaelic game that stands out, whether it might be a block or a great score. And you know that people are going to celebrate it. So, you know, it's very gratifying that way. You know, it doesn't, you don't have to be at the top level in Gaelic games to do that. No, it's, it's really is amazing. And, you know, the work that you're doing as well now, I suppose looking back in your... You know, you were sacked from the BBC in, in 2009, I think it was, Jerome, and um, the subsequent um, court case and that that was, it was played out in the media. You know, how, you know, looking back now, is it the best thing that happened? And, you know, I'm sure you didn't want it to be that way, but, mm. you know, things happen for a reason, as I say. Yeah, well, I mean, I'd wanted to get out for a number of years. I'd gone for jobs in RTE, and I was actually going out with a girl from Dublin for a lot of years. I was thinking of moving to Dublin, but just couldn't get the move. So I got out, but not the way I wanted to get out, you know? Um, so it was unfortunate like that, but I mean, I look at it positively because, you know, I was able to throw myself into another way of working. Now it was difficult. Like I was basically on the street, you know, and then you're having to go, what do I do now? Um, and I threw myself into it and I got a lot of help from a lot of people in Gaelic games. I mean, they appreciated what I'd gone through and realized what the backstory was, you know, so I got a lot of support, you know, from at that time from Gaelic games, people in the Ulster Council, Ulster Colleges, higher education, whatever, you know, they were happy enough to get behind me, um, which was great. 
and you know it, it was an interesting journey but when I look back now you know I was able to use a lot of skills that I'd learned in BBC that really set me apart so when I was starting to do video work I wasn't a great cameraman still still not a great cameraman but I was able to use a lot of skills in, in, in terms of interviewing in terms of um, picking out bits in terms of doing voiceovers you know, I knew what a story was. So a lot of skills that I'd learned in there stood to me, and that's what has been, has, has stood to me over over ten years. Um, so I, I just got stuck in, and for about three years, I didn't really stop. Uh, and then I tried to get a bit of a balance, and went back and sort of realised I can't do this all the time. This is crazy, but it just absolutely took off. <clears throat> Excuse me, and. Um, you know, uh, twenty nine. That was two thousand and nine, two thousand ten. And then I remember thinking in 2011, well, if I can do a film of a game here in Belfast and then put it on a laptop and put it online, you know, people can see it anywhere in the world. And I thought, right, but if I go on the other side of the world, that'll work as well. That'll work in the reverse. Um, so I bought a ticket and went to Australia and went to Melbourne and turned up basically at the door of long lost relatives and went along to the Gaelic day and they had a Sunday where they were just playing all their Gaelic games in Melbourne and um, filmed all day, put up a few videos and the reaction was fantastic. And the people in Sydney got onto me uh, from Michael Cusick's and this girl from Cavan, Jamie, and said, when are you coming up to Sydney? And I said, next Sunday. So I went to Sydney and did the same there. And then Brisbane said, when are you coming up there? And I went to Brisbane. So I spent three weeks got around them <clears throat> and had a ball and that really set it off and then other people around the world saw what I was doing and, and they wanted me to come to them uh, and do a bit more like that you know um, so it was interesting by the way do you want me to turn the light on Looks like yeah. <laughs> yeah go <laughs> ahead I, I had to do it the last time as well oh, okay. <laughs> there you go well, I can see the jersey now I just see noticed it getting darker as I was uh, talking away there, don't, so, worry. Uh, don't worry it happened to me last week but was that the light bulb moment then, Drum, for you? Oh, very good. Well, let's see what you did there. <laughs> <laughs> very but, good. You know, oh, you're a pro. You're so <laughs> what a you know, segue. Um, you know, but how hard was it to reinvent yourself then? You know, you, you, obviously, if you're working for, for somebody and, and they're telling you what to do, and maybe, as you said, the auto cue, this is what you have to say, and this is the way the show is. Yeah. You know, at that time... Like, Are you trying to say that I don't like people telling me what to do? Um, <laughs> like which is, which is, there's a lot of truth in that, you know, and it is really nice to be able to go along uh, to games now where people just, ah, there's Jerome going ahead in, and it's lovely. I really do enjoy that, whereas, like, if you told me now to sit behind a desk and be part of a team and do what you're told, I'm not sure I could, to be honest. I, I really like the freedom of uh, being involved. And, like, ladies football, for example, I've been working for them a lot of years now, and you know, they, they, they're different PR people, but um, they usually just say to me, you know yourself, work away. So if I'm going to a press day, I might say to them, well, what do you want to do? And they say, you know yourself. And that's nice that I can go along because they know that I, I know what I'm doing and I know what the story is. So they're not telling me what I can or can't do. Um, for example, <laughs> there's a story coming to mind here. I don't know. Um, when was it? Stevie O'Neill. Do you remember Stevie O'Neill came back to Tyrone? That's right. Yep. At the start of September, mm -hmm. for the, after being out that year and after being retired, and it was he was, and I, I think I got the story on like a, a Monday or Tuesday night. I think Peter Canavan rang me, and it was he'd been at training, and I broke it in the radio the next morning. Now it'll be all over Twitter, like the previous night. But so it was on the radio, and then at the meeting that morning, 
we had a meeting in, in the sports office to decide what you do for the day. So everybody goes to that. And we're in the boss's office and we're all talking about, oh, Stevie O'Neill, wow, you know, and what about it, Stevie? And then the boss is there and there was this boss at the time now and um, I'll, I'll, um, uh, I'll try to put this nicely. I not, not, don't want to sound bitter, um, but he, he said, um, hold on a minute. He says, um, I think we need to put this in context. And we all went like, what? <laughs> and he says, well, not everybody knows who Stevie O'Neill is. And we're going, yeah, we do. And he's going, no, no. He says, um, a lot of, it's not like, Gillick's not like other sports. He says, you need to compare it to like Brian O'Driscoll for Ireland or David Healy for Northern Ireland soccer and explain to people who he is. And we were going, right, okay. Anyway, let's go, lads. And we all went out to do stories. So we'd lined up interviews all day. I went down to Dungannon. And like I was, I was interviewing the butcher and his customers, you know, and um, I got a phone call. And it was the boss again. He never rang me during the day, but he rang me and he said, I just want to impress upon you that we need to put this in context. And I'm like, what the, you know? <laughs> so I came back and um, put together the story, lead story. And of course, your man uh, wanted it done. And I had I'd written the link and I hadn't put it in. And he, re he wrote the link and said, it's like Brian O'Driscoll coming back for Ireland or David Healy coming back for Northern Ireland. And I was like, for crying out loud. <laughs> you know, and it was, I remember one time when Cormac McAnallen, um, it was Tyrone's first game, I think, without him. And they came back and they had retired the number, the number three jersey and stuff, you know, and I remember the, the newsroom editor telling me, no, we don't want any more references to Cormac McAnallen. And they'd, they'd had the game the previous day and I'd put, I'd put it in my report. And she says, I want you to take that out of it. And I had a script in my hand and a paper and a sheet. And I just crumpled it up and I walked away from her and threw it over my shoulder. And she claimed that I'd thrown it at her. <laughs> Maybe just a bad shot. <laughs> I tossed it in the air. It was like whatever. You know? And she went and took it out. Like, but I wasn't for doing it. So I didn't like people telling me what to do. No, <laughs> maybe it was towards the end. I knew what was coming, and it had enough. Had enough. But as you said, like you know, where else would you get the travel? You know, every single continent now going and and with the ladies' football you mentioned there. Like, right. Did you know? Do you know, I once I once tried actually to go to um, Alaska. I was over <laughs> in the west coast, and I saw this advertisement, and there was a club. Up there, there was a Gaelic club there, and I'd seen they'd put something up online, and I wrote to them and says, "Hey, what he's doing?" And I just—that's how crazy it got. I even thought of going to Alaska for goodness sake, you know. <laughs> I, I didn't, but I was like, you know, anything, anything was game. You, know? you have to, you have to go to Alaska then. That's that's the next <laughs> one. But the ladies' football, it is, you know, the rise in it as well has been has been tremendous. You know, it has made a. Um, been one of the is it the main point like of getting it that that stage now? Um, well, if you consider that the All Ireland Final Lady Supple in twenty twelve had sixteen thousand people on it, and last year's final had fifty six thousand people at it. Now, okay, you've a Dublin in there, and it was a monster derby, but still, there's been a huge lift there. Um, I think it's part of what I said earlier. You know, that females getting more involved in sport, and this is it now coming through more. And ladies football have done incredibly well in every department. I mean, they, um, they have Gaelic for girls, they have Gaelic for teens, they have a under 17 thing for girls, they have Gaelic for mothers. You know, it's not just all about the big games. It's 
getting the everybody involved as many people as possible and it's it's a really clever approach and it's really well organized for a small team i mean they don't have a huge team in ladies football but they do an absolutely amazing job they're so enthusiastic and it's a bit like the excitement and the enthusiasm is a bit like the championship program back 30 years ago because you just sensed this excitement and everybody was pulling for it and everybody wanted it to work and everybody wanted it to develop and it was an exciting time you know, whereas like, say later when you did the championship program, you know, like at the start, it felt like, and this might've been sort of a myth that I, I have in my head, but I remember the, the guys coming back from like a planning meeting at a Gaelic ground. And um, I'd said, well, how'd you get on? They said, well, they said, um, you know, whatever you want, we'll do it. Um, and, you know, if there was like a semi-detached house overlooking the pitch, they'd say, look, we'll move that for you. You know, that that's, that's how much the GA appreciated the program and that, you know, now years later, they mightn't have, you know, but the excitement is the same in ladies football now. And I get it now when I go to games, you know, they're thrilled just to see you there. And that's what, that's what I mean about it. It's very gratifying. And, you know, every young girl in the country seems to be playing ladies football now. Um, even more so down south, like every school is in it, in it, in it in a big way. And it is absolutely going through the roof. So I don't think it's just the publicity, but the publicity has helped. And things have just changed a lot. Um, and it's it's going crazy. I mean, I'll give you one wee sort of anecdote. Um, four years ago, it must be. Um, I had done stuff for them before, but they'd always got me to do like press launches and things like that. And I'd always said, look, will you send me to a game? I want to do games because then you put up the skills and you put up the goals and whatever. And that's what you need to see. And they said, with no budget. But then Lidl came in with a load of money and they said, right, you're going to a game. And the first National League game that year, first game of the year, at the end of January, I went to Mallow and Cork were playing Mayo. So I filmed it. And Cora Staunton, God bless her, scored a fantastic goal as she does. But also she took it from the right side into the top left. So it was perfect for the camera as well. Um, God bless her again. She did do anything for you that girl. She always wear the cameras, but um, no money joking. Uh, and, but also... That Sunday, RTE News took that goal and put it on the six and the nine, which was unheard of. So just that goal, just that 10 seconds of that goal. So there was a guy on there, Dave Kelly, and he, he said, look, we'll take that. And then for the last four years, not every Sunday, but a lot of Sundays, you'll see a clip and that's mine. So... The difference is that years ago, the likes of Ladies Football would have rung up the BBC or RT and said, we'll be game on Sunday, can you come? And BBC would have, like, I was on that side of the fence. And they'd have said, we don't have a camera available, but look, we'll see what we can do. Now they get me to film it and give it to RTE. So RTE get free. They don't pay me, but Ladies Football pay me to generate the content. That's the way it's changed. So I was giving them, and I mean, that's worth everything for them because it's on the night, like the six news, the six one and the nine o'clock news on a Sunday night are huge. So, you know, when they come to ladies football, they'll, instead of just reading results, they'll say, this is Cora Stoughton scoring a goal for Mayo today against Cork. And that's how the games went. And you just run that clip in. And, you know, that was a sign. I think at that time, that was a sea change. There was an attitude change in broadcasting because RTE were going, right, we need to put ladies sport in there. And now you see like ladies pundits all over the place. You see lady Ireland soccer games being shown live, Ireland rugby, Ireland hockey, Ireland cricket, all female sport are all up there in the 2020 campaign. But that's only four years ago. And, you know, there was obviously a huge influence from the, the likes of Yvonne. Um, and Jackie Hurley and people like that in RTE pushing it as well. But I think there was also an acceptance 
that ladies sport female sport deserved a higher recognition and that was sort of part of it as well and obviously i mean if you're going out to those sort of audiences on a continual basis then a lot of young girls and females are going to see that and the other interesting thing i'd say is that um to get credibility you have to deserve it so the games had to be good the skills had to be good now i was picking out the best bits but there were good bits in it and the game has developed the players have developed and the game at the top level is really really fantastic to watch and you know one little way you can judge that is um I used to put up scores maybe seven, eight years ago and lads would go on the likes of Facebook and slag them off. You know, they'll slag the goalkeeper for dropping one in. There was this perception that ladies footballer, ladies goalkeepers weren't good and stuff, you know. Um, and, you know, they'd go on and take the hand out of it. You rarely see that happen now. Rarely see it, you know. They're very odd one and then people will round on them. But then you have different attitudes. You know, if you put up a goal from a men's match, if I put up a goal from a men's match, like lads will all take the hand of each other anyway. You know, and they'll go, uh, you know, um, you're too fat to do that now, or it was a lucky shot or whatever. But if you put up a clip from a, a girls footballer doing the same thing, all the girls are straight on and they go, well done. Mm-hmm. And they're listing down on Facebook underneath, fantastic, what fair play to you. You know, they don't have a go at each other the way, and not, not, not normally, I mean, not the way the men do. So that's an interesting difference. No, I've definitely seen, you know, um, the fitness levels and the work rate and the skill levels. Neighbour of mine, uh, Lauren Cunningham, she's, you know, the fitness work that she she does is, is frightening. Like, and, you know, I'm sure in 10 years uh, that you've been involved with ladies football, you've seen some difference in, in skill levels and fitness levels as well. Well, absolutely. I mean, Cora Staunton is still going at about 38 years old, <clears throat> you know, and she's just a phenomenal player. But if you were to go now to any top level game in Division 1, you'd be amazed at the speed, the physicality as well, although it's not supposed to be. Um, there's not supposed to be that level of physicality, but there just is. You know, and the likes of Dublin, Galway, and an All-Ireland Final, or Cork, or whatever, the game, the pace of the games are fantastic. The skills are fantastic. And some of the individual flair that you have there from the likes of Emer Scally, uh, people like that, you know, they're, they're a joy to watch Geraldine McLaughlin at Donegal is just absolutely unreal. Like the goals that she scores are ridiculous, you know, and they're just, and she is fantastic. There's loads of great players and it's, it is top level stuff now and they really put it in and, you know, they have their diet right and they take it so seriously. And that goes right, right down to, you know, the junior players now as well. You see that it's the whole thing is taken on. And that's why so many of them have ended up in Australia. You know, and that has improved their 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 way as well. But like, I mean, the Dublin team. I mean, right out from Kira Trant, the goalkeeper. You know, they've taken it to another level, and someone else is going to come along and take it to another level again. Because you look at if there's fifty six thousand people in the crowd, that's a lot of young girls who are going to come through in the next ten ten years and make the standard even higher. And I wouldn't be surprised if in the not too distant future we saw Croke Park filled for an All-Ireland Ladies Final. Obviously not this year, but it was heading that way. I mean, say they don't open the hill for the All-Irelands, but imagine if they opened it this year and Dublin had been there. You know, you'd have got close to filling Croke Park. That's how, how explosive the whole thing has been over the last number of years and where it's a sign of where it's going. No, it's brilliant. It really is. And like as you said, it's, it's brilliant to be at the start of it as well, you know, to see it to see it um, develop. But another thing that, that I want to talk to you about is 
you know, how has players and management availability throughout the years been drawn um, in, the, in the men's game? You know, I'm sure in the, in the 90s, whenever you were looking to interview Pete McGrath and, and Eamon Coleman and the likes, till now, where you're trying to, do you have to go through press officers or you know, do you have to go through managers to get the managers and so on? Not really, no. More, now more so. But back then, it was pretty easy. As I say, though, the, the BBC programme was very popular, so we had, an, we had an open licence. We could get what we wanted. Like we did a programme, Three Glorious Years, which is a documentary after the first three All-Ireland wins in the 90s. And, you know, we went to Wendy Eamon Coleman's house and basically took over his house and put up like a studio with lights and cameras and everything, you know, and um, interviewed him for an hour and a half and did the same with Canavan and Pete McGrath and Donegal. I remember going to Donegal once before they won the All-Ireland and we were going to do a preview and we were setting off from Belfast and we had two cars because one car wasn't enough. There was a lighting guy, there was a producer, there was an audio guy, there was me. Like, And this was in for like a three-minute piece. That's how much went into it and how popular it became, you know. But no, we, we had easy, it was easy for us to get access and you know it was easy it was easier for everyone in those days i think they get access it's just got a lot more difficult these days and um to be honest i find now i enjoy interviews with ladies footballers much more than usually with men i have to say because ladies footballers are much more open and you know they'll tell you stuff and you could say that's because they're not as well versed but I think men, a lot of the top men's footballers, like they're going to tell you stuff and they'll tell you what they want to tell you and they'll be very guarded. You know, they're very, very careful. And ladies football can be guarded as well, but they're very happy to do it. They're very happy to promote their sport. You know, that's what it's about for them. It's not just about sort of um, being coy, you know. So, um, and again, ladies footballers, you know, they're, they're easier, I suppose, to get these days. But, you know, it's always a challenge. And like, I'll go back to Eamon Coleman. I loved interviewing Eamon Coleman. He was absolutely brilliant. And he had a way of throwing you off course. And that was to give you a very short first answer, which as a journalist or an interviewer, you don't want. You know, to like, there's a, there a famous interview I did with him at halftime in the 93 All-Ireland Final. They're coming off the pitch and it's raining and they're being rushed over towards the dressing rooms, which were between the Hogan and the Canal in those days. And the head of sport was with me and we had a camera ready and they grabbed him and just brought him over. And we just had seconds with him. And it turned out it was 18 seconds. And I, it was just like, go. And I says, Eamon, what's it like out there? And he went, tough stuff. And, and I was like, right. <laughs> you know, an idiot of a glint in his eye, but you need to sort of ask him the same question again, you know. So, you know, characters like that were just priceless. And then Pete McGrath, like we went down to Pete's house in Restrever and interviewed him there. Um, many times and, and there was another time I got him to do like uh, at the end of 91 I got him to do this radio sort of he did the voiceover for like a package remembering the All-Ireland win you know and he he was like well he said well you know what you're doing you 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 tell me you're the expert and I'm going like I'm only a kid you know <laughs> you're the guy who wants All-Ireland you know <laughs> so you know that was enjoyable to be able to do that but Pete's always been a gentleman you know so to be honest I work at grassroots level these days and ladies football I mean that's maybe wrong to call that grassroots but grassroots is maybe wrong um lower levels is wrong as well but if you know what I mean I'm not in Crow Park anymore doing the huge games mm -hmm. and I don't miss it because 
the top games can take care of themselves. Croke Park can take care of itself, and it always will. But I find it far more rewarding to be doing the, you know, a Ladies Football National League game or a Sigerson Cup game that, you know, some county players are in and no other cameras are at it or, you know, some club game or whatever, you know, so I, I pref- and, and some games around the world, there's no one else doing it. It's nice to be at something nobody else is doing because as I said earlier, it's so gratifying to be doing all those games and you get, you get access to all that as well. And like Croke Park's just become Croke Park, you know, you go along and it's, I don't really find it even enjoyable to go to watch, you know, you're, you're deafened by the announcements and the games aren't even that great half the time, you know, so I'm quite happy with what I'm doing now. I find it much more enjoyable. I don't know if that answered your question, but no, I no, it definitely did, and uh, you know uh, that's what you know. Have you ever just? Uh, I know what the, you're trying to say about the the, the grassroots level, or whatever. But um, have you ever just stopped and just thought to yourself, that's that's some player there. Whenever you're you're videoing, you know, or they're going to make it in in ten years or five years or whatever. Yeah, Marty Clark was one of the earliest ones that I would have seen like that, um, because we we would have seen him. Actually, I've just remembered now. I saw him play in McCrory Cup, but even before that, I remember presenting the Ulster College's All-Stars Night in the Ramada here in Belfast. It was one of the first years he did it, and I think it might have been 2001, maybe around there, and I think Stevie O'Neill was a guest. He just won an All-Star. So this big glitzy night we had, and um, I remember they were giving out all the cups for Ranafast and Cornanoga and all that, and I remember we had a meeting before it with, I think it was BT with the sponsors, or Bank of Ireland or whatever, and um, I said, why don't you have an award that nobody knows about? Like, on the night, nobody knows who's going to win it. And I was like, what are you talking about? I says, well, everybody knows who won the cup. So you're bringing up all the captains who won, and they get their cup, and away they go. I says, why don't you have an overall? And we, we come up with this idea for, like, a merit award. And it was decided that we give it to this fella called Marty Clark. And I think he was only 16, so it wasn't McCrory. It was below that. And he had scored something like 114 or 116. And it worked out, it was like a score every three minutes. Now, we hadn't filmed it, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But I remember bringing him up onto the stage, giving this award and interviewing him. And he was, you know, a lovely, cool character, even then. Because uh, I said, well, how do you feel about scoring that? He was like, well, I should have scored a bit more. You know, or something <laughs> like that. You know, some answer like that. And he genuinely meant it. You know, he missed a few, you know. Um, so... I came across him then and then we watched out for him and like I remember getting video from him from a McCrory Cup game and there was a shot of him while the ball was up the other end of the pitch and there was a man in front of him and a man behind him and we heard that he had a terrible flu he was a doubt to even be able to play and he was still putting over balls in 50 yards you know so he was one of the players that you sort of earmarked and thought well I know he's going to be good and in ladies terms one of the girls I've, I've, I saw like years ago and thought wow Amy Mackin of Armagh when she hits a ball, you hear the twack of the boot hitting the leather, and then you hear it hitting the stanchion and nearly breaking it. She can hit a ball. Uh, and she is just lethal and a lovely, lovely person uh, as well. And um, she's the, one of the, you know, she's one of the stars, of the, well, she's a star now and will be the star of the future. So those would be two that I'd pick out. Brilliant. And on your, I know you're doing a lot of globe trotting and that, but um, do you keep an eye on the down football scene at all whenever you're away and, and you know look out for results or are you surprised by how? Not you... at all. <laughs> <laughs> are you, you really there? think when I'm in the Cayman Islands or Alaska or San Diego that I'm thinking how Restrepo got on against Glen? <laughs> That'd be a big game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> no, no, actually, I'm joking because when you're abroad, you meet all these people who come down to you and tell you where they're from. So they're interested in it, you know, or like there's a guy in um, Dallas, you know, and he's like, all he cares about is how English and her owner are getting on, really, you know. So you get people like that all around the world. So yeah, yeah, you keep a bit of an eye on what's, what's going on at home as well, and people are quick to let you know. And do you what you call so the the the, the countries and, and the the organisations they get in contact with you then drone to to come over and say they've got a tournament or a, whatever or um, but well like I said I mean at that twenty eleven time I went to Australia um, people then started getting on to me mm-hmm. so mainly they would have offered or brought me out to like this guy Joe Trollin he lives in mm-hmm. Seoul in Korea he's from Balance Green he's a chair in uh, Asia and he brought me out to the Asian Gaelic Games in Kuala Lumpur in twenty thirteen. And I've been out every year since. You know, he'd watched me on the championship program. He only told me this last year. He, he thought it was a big deal to get me to come out. And I'm going, sure, I'll come out, you know. And we've just, it's a nice relationship. You know, you know, they've benefited from what I do. And I benefit from them bringing me out. And it's good fun. So it's been a great experience. And it's the same in San Diego. There was one, one year I was sitting in February. And I got a message on Facebook from a woman called Tracy Rivera. And she said, I've seen some of your videos of uh, Gaelic Games online. What would it take to bring you out to San Diego, to the West Coast Sevens, at the end of May, um, to cover the tournament? And I'm thinking, not much. (laughs) But I'd noticed that day that the Rolling Stones had announced their first tour in five years. And the opening night would be in Petco Park, the baseball stadium, in the center of San Diego that Saturday night. And she wanted me to film on a Saturday and Sunday. And I wrote back to her rather a bit cheekily and said, get me a ticket for the Stones. And she wrote back and says, where do you want to sit? <laughs> so I went along and I covered their tournament, saw the Rolling Stones and saw Mick Jagger afterwards, but that's another story. Um, and, and had a ball and I've been out every year to San Diego. We even live streamed from there last year. And I brought my son with me as well. And I've been out like six, seven times, eight times to San Diego in that time. So, you know, it's been a bit of a mixture. I mean, there's sometimes I've sort of developed it. Like um, in America, for example, there's Pat Dobe, this guy from Limerick, who's in um, Austin, Texas. And he was bringing me out. And I thought, right, there's no point going all the way there just for one thing. So I, I noticed that Atlanta had something the previous Sunday. So I went to, I got on to them and I ended up going to Atlanta in Georgia and doing stuff there. And then the week after, and I, I thought, I may as well extend this to three weeks. And the week after I noticed, I had a friend who played for Breda and she's now a teacher on the Cayman Islands. And I got onto her on Facebook and said, um, he's doing anything. She's ah, we have a bit of a tournament on at the weekend. I says, well, do you want me to cover? And she's, yeah, 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 you can stay at my place. So I ended up going to the Cayman for a week and it was absolutely just idyllic. It was glorious. It was better than you could even imagine. It was just unreal. Beautiful, beautiful place. And I covered the Gaelic film, you know, and it was just an absolute hoot. So it's, I've pushed myself. But one of the things is that I haven't really pushed myself money-wise. You know, there's times I've done it and I haven't made money. You know, but there's times it's about the experience. Of it. It's about getting your name out there as well. Now, I've got a bit of a deal going at times with Croke Park to supply them with some stuff, but not all the time. There's plenty of times that I've done it and, you know, there's not really that much in it, you know, and, um, you know, there's, there's TV companies, for example, would not do it for what, what you get out of it. But sometimes when you're on your own, you can just go and do these things. You have that sort of freedom that I was talking about that, that you can go and do it. And what's interesting is um, you're more welcomed in sort of the new areas for Gaelic games, like in America, for example, the Austin, Texas, the San Diego's, 
Whereas, you know, the Bostons and Chicago's and New York, you know, they've had all this for 100 years and they don't really need you as such. But you've also, if you think of the recession in 2008, after that, a lot of Irish people went abroad who were very qualified in a lot of areas. So the likes of Pat I mentioned who went to Austin, you know, he's a real mover and shaker in the society there. And he's, he's developing the Gaelic games in, in a really sophisticated way. I mean, not to sort of run down, say, the likes of New York in the 70s, but I mean, the perception of Gaelic games abroad in those days was that the lads were all on construction sites and they played hard and beat the hell out of each other on, the, on, on a rough pitch on a Sunday and then they drank themselves silly, you know. Mm-hmm. And, um, there might have been something in that and there might still be something in that, <laughs> you know. But, um, but they, they, it's changed a lot, you know. It's a lot more sophisticated and a lot more places and then they want, to, they want to sing about it. So they get on to me so that I can tell the rest of the Gaelic Games world what they're doing. And as I said earlier, I have the ability to do that because I learned it. So, it, it, you know, everybody kind of wins, I think. The... Uh... Just a couple of more questions, just while I've got you on here. And um, I suppose, did you watch the uh, Sunday game on on Sunday? Um, I saw bits of it. I didn't really, I didn't see the whole thing. Well, there's there's a bit of controversy about Sean Cavanaugh's comments. Just, and I was just wondering, mm-hmm. you know, um, your take on it. Um, my personal take on it is that you know he didn't really think about what he was saying, but you know, it was sort of slip of the tongue, is if you want to call that. But um, how important is it the you know, uh, to be careful what you say on TV and, you know, where do you go from here? Well, the first thing I'd say is that there are some people, especially in Tyrone, who would have a perception of Sean Kavanagh and they'd been very quick to jump on him, you know? So there's history there that um, people are happy to do that and that's unfair, you know? Um, And, you know, I think what he was, I know what he was trying to say. It came out wrong and it was unfortunate. But at the, at the same time, I think people were a little bit too quick to hammer him for it, you know, because he was <clears throat> trying to say that, I mean, I mean, I'm living in Belfast and at one stage there were a couple of weeks ago, we're going like, we're being told by three different people, right? By three different areas what to do. You know, you've, you have Boris, you have Leo, you have Arlene. And it's like, they're giving us three different sets of instructions. So we're in a unique position here. So I think he was trying to explain, like, it's okay for you down south. You're, you're just getting it from Leo. And up here, we're getting it every way. So he's trying to say, look, it's different, not just in Northern Ireland, but in the whole UK, we're getting it every way. So I think he was just trying to explain that. You know, I don't think he was being political in any way, or I don't think he was trying to insult anybody. And in any way either you know so I think it was all just a little bit unfortunate but you know some people will want to jump on on him for for whatever reasons and also you have the whole social media thing there allows itself is open to that now as well so you know it was just a bit unfortunate it's just one of those things that happens but sure storm in a teacup I'd say it's gone now were you surprised that the hard line the RT took with Joe Brawley last year um, after the the All Ireland final. I love Joe Brawley. I have to admit, and I know people don't, and I get that. But I get Joe Brawley. I know what he's like. I've I've known him a long time, and yes, I think RT were far too hard, and I think they shot themselves in the foot. I mean, he's box office, and I think you know they promoted him, and they encouraged him, and if he went over the line they were the ones that told him to, to, to go very near that line. I mean, Joe told me himself that when he started, he was worried. Like when he started in TV years ago, he was worried about what to say. And they, then head of sport told him, don't you worry about that. Mm-hmm. 
and he went and he went over the line and went near the line and was near the line a lot of the times, you know. Um, but they loved it. And it was the same they had in the soccer with Eamon Dunphy. And it was the same in the rugby with George Hook. It was all very similar. You know, they liked these characters that are box office and everyone's talking about them instead of the game. You know, so how can you have that one time, one minute in, the next minute you don't? Um, but there were changes in personnel within RTE and they obviously wanted to do things in a different way. And I guess you have to respect that as well. But personally, like, I feel they were wrong, you know, to... Um, put their main guy out like that there. I, I thought it was poor. <laughs> I'm not trying to say because it sort of happened to me in a way, but um, no, I think Joe is box office. And like I've interviewed him going way back and I know what Joe's like. And there's nobody else can talk like Joe. There's no, no one else. Can <laughs> and there's times, you know, when he just baffles you. But he also nails so many things and explains them in a way that nobody else can. And I just think he's fantastic in many, many ways. And I know once or twice he's going to step over the line. But like, that's no, like I remember in 93, Henry Downey talking to Henry, who was the captain. And then those days, like Joe wasn't that well known, you know. And um, he said, um, he described him as eccentric. And then I remember another guy, Paul McElean played for Antrim and he was with Joe at the boarding school in Armagh and he said like Joe all, all, all term would have been mucking about and not really doing his work properly but on the last day of the exam there was these steps you go up in a big window and he says he'd have his, all, his, all, his, all his books out and he'd be standing just staring at it and he says we'd walk past him we'd say alright Joe or hit him in the back and he wouldn't even hear them he was like just taking it all in and then he'd pass the exam you know in many ways he's He's just different gravy. He's just an absolute genius in many ways, you know. And, um, oh, you know, Joe's Joe. And then just with the last question then, Joe, um, you've interviewed some great names in the sport and that, but is there any time or any person, you don't have to say the person, but you just thought, oh, Jesus, no, I don't want to interview these people. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, of course. You know, there's times you're thinking... Oh, you know, there was there was one last year, and again, I won't name it, but um, he was a PR guy who played, and I had gone to him and said, look, I need an interview with your man. He goes, oh, I think he's gone. I'll do it. And I'm going, <laughs> I says, um, are, you, are you sure he's gone? <laughs> um, so it was a bit of that. Oh, but no, look, I would always admire people, and that's part of the challenge in broadcasting as well that you you have to try and get the best out of people no matter what you think of them and you know that's a skill in itself to try and break people down if you like and to get what they're really about and that can be really really difficult but it can be really rewarding as well i mean i'll give you one story um mick higgins was the last cabin man to lift the samaguire and uh, about five years ago, he was going to be paraded in Clonus before an Ulster final because they had all the Sam Maguire captains from Ulster. I can't remember what anniversary or whatever it was, but he was 87 years old. And I thought that week, you know what? I'll go to his house and interview him. And I went to his house in Virginia and Cavan and arrived at his house and um, brought an apple pie with me as well. You had to arrive with something. I couldn't just arrive empty-handed. There's a story behind that too. But... Um, so I went to the interview and I was very excited about this. I thought, oh, this would be great. 
and it was just me and him, and I had all these questions. I'd done my research, you know, and I says, um, started anyway. I says, Mick, um, what was it like? You know, nineteen fifty, early fifties. Can't remember what year it was. And uh, the All Ireland Final. Oh, well, you know, I can't really remember it too well. You know, all right, okay. I says, well, what was it like? Um, you scored five points, and it was raining. Ah, it wasn't a great day. I don't think. Uh, but anybody could have taken the freeze. Right. Uh, the final whistle must have been great. Ah, I don't really remember it. And lifting the cup now, when you lifted the cup, you pull it up like, and you look down, and what a moment that must have been for you. Ah, well, we'd won it a few times, and, um, you know, anybody, all the boys are just, I just passed it on to the next man. I think, what? What are we doing here, you know? And then, right at the end, I just thought, I'd throw something in, and I said, um, Mick, how would you like to be remembered? And he said, I'd like to be remembered as a man who never pulled a dirty stroke on any other opponent and I never pulled a dirty trick on anybody and played the game the right way and respected my opponent. Brilliant. 87 years old and that's what he thought of Gaelic Games and the way he'd played it and never mind the winning All-Irelands, that's what it meant to him. And he died about three or four months later and his son told me that at the funeral service he spoke at it and he quoted that and he said, my father never said anything interesting, anything interesting in his life <laughs> until that, and that's but but that that's what summed him up, and that was him, and that was his legacy, if if you like, in in a verbal way, and you know that was that's an example of somebody where you really have to push, but sometimes it's the simplest question that will bring the right answer out, the the one that you want, you know, and and that will tell the story, and you're always wanting to get the story you know, and to get really what sums it up and to, to get something that does the person justice. Mm-hmm. And and that, in the end, did him justice, you know. That's, that's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And, you know, I suppose about whenever you are part of the media, not, you have a responsibility as well. And, you know, you, you do, you're looking for heroes as well. And, you know, as you said, people are probably a wee bit quick to jump on people whenever something does go wrong. But... Uh, well, I remember one, um, John, as well, in, in New Haven, in um, Connecticut. And um, I was doing a CYC, the youth tournament out there, and this guy got on to me and he says, I'm coming up from New Haven to see you tomorrow. And like, I was like, oh, okay. And he came up and he says, can I take you out for dinner? And I'm going, look, I haven't much time. I'm doing that. He says, can I take you? I says, all right. So he came up, took me out for dinner, and then he says, I want you to come down to our club. And he brought me down to his club. And like I was going away the next day, but he, he brought me down. And uh, he was from Galway, this man, Mike, Mike Faherty, and he's been, you know, it's, he's retired now. He's been out there a lifetime. Um, but he had a wee club there, amazing spot in New Haven. They have a cultural centre. It's one of these clubs that's been there like 100 years, this wee cultural centre, and they have a pitch. But the pitch was only about the size of a soccer pitch. They could only play youth games on it. And at the end of the pitch, there was this rock. And when I say rock, I mean like a mountain of rock that was like bluestone, um, from it which is used in roads and that so it was like big big rock so they, they couldn't extend the pitch and their senior team had to go and play for their senior players that they brought through had to go and play for other teams in new york so they didn't have a senior club as such you know and they then set about getting rid of the rock with dynamite and gelignite so i was filming this <laughs> and like this guy's this guy's got a truck and he's saying, yeah, man, I got all this gear here. And I'm going like, um, right, what do you mean? And he pulled the doors open at the back. And it was like something 
from the movies, you know, back in the day. And all you could see was these bits of dynamite and jelly. You know, the wee string and you're thinking, oh my, whatever you do, don't light your cigarette, you know? <laughs> and the thing was full of it. And I'm going like, whoa. <laughs> but that's what they were doing. They were putting this in the rock and then a load of tires over it. And then they'd tell all the neighbors and then they'd go, you know? And they blasted this rock. And three years later, he brought me back. And they have a full-length Gaelic pitch. Unbelievable story. And I said to this guy, Mike, and I was interviewing him about it, and he was going, well, we're, he got a bit of an accent now, you know, we're doing this and we're doing that. And I says, why? Why are you doing this? And he, he started to break down, you know. And I says, I'm leaving a legacy. You know, and that's a man from Galway, living in America, He's retired and he wants to leave a legacy of a Gaelic pitch there for future generations. And that's the beauty of Gaelic games. And that's at, at the end of his life, or the, the latter stages of his life, I'm sure he won't mind me saying that, as compared to the wee kid at the CYC I interviewed last year, Conal Harvey, with metal legs and four fingers removed from his, his right hand. And he was playing in a game for the Delco Gales. And I'm along filming this. And I'd heard about it and I went along and thought, well, he's on the sideline. And he had all his kit on. And then the manager put in, the manager was a dairy man, maybe that explains it. But he, he put him on. And this kid's walking onto the pitch with metal legs. He'd had, he'd, he'd had all sorts of health issues and leukemia and everything. And he'd had his legs amputated. And he's on the pitch. And the beautiful thing about it was that he wanted the ball. He couldn't run, but he was like walking around the pitch. And his teammates, girls and boys, and the other team, and the referee, and the coaches, they were all in it. They were all supporting him. And whenever his team won a free, you could hear people saying, give it to Connell. And he'd come over and they'd give him the ball to take the free. And he'd try to kick it. And it would sort of, he couldn't get his foot up, but it would maybe bounce off his metal knee. And then the girl got and she'd give it back to him to take it again. And he was running around this pitch and they let him score a goal the following year at, at the CYC, you know, and it was one of the most, ama and most amazing stories I've ever done. And like those two stories in America, an old guy, a young guy, they sum up what the GA is about and why it's so, so rewarding. And maybe that answers your question at the start. Maybe it was the right thing. You know, maybe I was meant to leave the BBC, maybe not the way it was done, but maybe I was meant to go and report in these stories and it's been... You know, it's such an honor to be able to do those sort of stories because it's such a special, it's not even right to call it a sport. It's an organization. It's a community all around the world. And those sort of stories sum it up, you know, and it's just, they're just incredible to do. No, Joe, keep up the great work. It's, it's really amazing. Keep up the, the, the videos and, you know, if you ever need a, a cameraman, give me a shout. <laughs> I've never had that offer before. <laughs> Jerome, absolutely fantastic, great stories, and you know, thanks for your help as well with the, with the May show as well. Always a pleasure to talk to you, and you know, um, hopefully this this lockdown and we'll get back to sports whenever it's all safe and well. Absolutely, it's a pleasure to be on. I love what you're doing. The Marty Clark interview last week was fantastic; went down really well. Really, really enjoyed it, and I've told everybody about it as well. So I hope I've even done half as well as that. <laughs> Cheers, Jerome. Brilliant. Thanks very much. Talk to you soon. Thank you.